On this week's episode of the Northeast Newscast, we are speaking with Tara Rockavere, Northeast resident and director of KC Tenants, and Brandy Granados, Northeast resident and leader of Kansas City Tenants. KC Tenants is a new organization led by a multiracial base of tenants in Kansas City, organizing to ensure that everyone in KC has a safe, accessible, and affordable home. Rockavere and Granados discuss the mission of KC Tenants, issues renters face, personal experience as tenants in Kansas City, and what KC Tenants plans to do to enact change. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start with some introductions. So go ahead and introduce yourself and a little bit about your role. My name is Tara Rockavere. I'm a resident of the historic Northeast. Mm-hmm. I'm also a Kansas City native, and I'm the director of KC Tenants. My name is Brandy Granados. I'm a resident in the, the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And I'm a leader in KC Tenants. Okay, so we are going to talk about KC Tenants today. I know you guys have been doing so much work in the community. So let's talk a little bit about how the organization got started. Sure. So I've been studying evictions in Kansas City for about six years. And my research on evictions was part of what politicized me and made me into a community organizer. I cut my teeth organizing in the immigrant rights movement based in Chicago for about three and a half years. And I always knew that I wanted to return to organizing around housing issues. Meanwhile, people in Kansas City started asking me to come back and talk about my eviction data. And so basically for the last two years, once a month, I was back here with a PowerPoint deck agitating a lot of people about the findings of my data and my research, which are pretty jarring, right? Like 42 formal evictions are filed per business day in Jackson Mm -hmm. County alone. Those are only the cases that make it to the landlord-tenant docket. Race is the biggest predictor of whether or not you'll be evicted in Kansas City. And if a case makes it to landlord-tenant court, 99.8% of the time, the landlord wins and the tenant is evicted. These are just a few of the things that we found in our research. And that was really agitating, obviously, for me as someone from this place and uh, who cares a lot about Kansas City. It was clear that the data were agitating people all over the city and that people were starting to recognize a real affordable housing problem in Kansas City. So sometime last summer, I started to feel just kind of irresponsible about agitating a bunch of people and not committing to build anything out of it. I'm also not really a researcher, like I am, but mostly I'm a community organizer, and I was uncomfortably clear that the thing that was needed to change anything in Kansas City was organizing among the people who are directly impacted by this issue. So I came back to Kansas City full-time about seven weeks ago, and since then I've been building a team of people like Brandy who are impacted by this issue And they're the closest to the problems, which makes them the closest to the solutions. And we've had seven tenant meetings weekly (laughs) since then. Well, you can't make change being quiet. That's right. It's a ton of work in seven weeks, and all credit to people like Brandy, who are living in the midst of these crises right now and are so clear that no one should ever have to go through what Brandy's gone through, what Tiana's gone through, any of the other leaders in our base. Yeah, so I think like the work that you've seen in seven weeks – Some of it is a statement of, it's a reflection of what good organizing looks like, Mm -hmm. right? When you organize well and you talk to people about their self-interest in the issue and what motivates them, that's how you get people to turn out like that. But also part of it is a reflection of the urgency. I think there's a palpable urgency in Kansas City right now that our city is being ripped out of our hands. Folks like Brandy and Tiana and Diane and everyone else in our base won't stand for it. Well, many of us got brought to KC Tenants because we're either current evictees or 
people currently dealing with slumlords. Um, my heater exploded in November, and my landlord refused to fix it. Codes came once, told me I had 30 days, never came back to check. I didn't have heat until January. And we already had three blizzards by then. And that's, that's not even to say the times I've been cussed out by my landlord that I've been called dumb female. And this guy owns 150 properties here in the Northeast. And so that was kind of how you decided to get involved? Yeah, because nobody should have to go through that. Mm -hmm. You know, no kid should have to watch their parent get yelled at by their landlord. That's just, it's not right. Mm -hmm. Like with Tiana, you know, she, she moved into a house the first night that they took showers. They had sewage spill in to their, their house and they couldn't get a hold of the property management company for a week. And it's just like, you can't, you can't live like that, but we're yeah. treated like we're commodities. So I know you said you did some of your work in Chicago. Um, have you seen any overlaps as far as the problems in Chicago? Do you see a connection or an overlap in Kansas City? Yeah, and I've also done tenant organizing across the country. Okay. So one thing that's helpful about my perspective is, one, I know that Kansas City is actually not that unique. Mm -hmm. Like, across the country, we're facing the same affordable housing crisis. Kansas City is not exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. Our problems look like Milwaukee's, look like St. Louis's, look like Denver's. And in that, I think we have a responsibility, right? Kansas City's not too far gone. We have a responsibility to lead the country towards some solutions at the municipal level and beyond. And other cities aren't taking those risks. They aren't acting bold enough or quick enough to actually stem the tide. Um, the other thing that's helpful about my national perspective is, like, I've seen what really, really powerful tenant organizing looks like and what it can do, Right. Tenants in New York have been organized for like 20 years, and what that means is that last year they won a billion dollars from the city to upgrade public housing in New York City. You know, I was with tenants in Chicago who staged a die-in in the lobby of the Chicago Housing Authority in the summer after elderly residents in public housing were dying because the elevators wouldn't work, right? And one week later, they won $35 million to fix every elevator and senior housing in the city of Chicago. That's the power of people organized around issues that impact their lives, and that's so needed in Kansas City, and I think the power is ours for the taking. And we're here to fight for it. We're, we're not just here to fight politics, we're here to fight the landlords, too. I mean, we've already made a big stride with the landmark. Um, with the new Healthy Homes Law, there's a $20 fee to get your, that you have to pay every year to get your house inspected, and it's written into the ordinance that you can't put that fee onto your tenants. The landmark thought that they'd be sly, and put out a letter to all their tenants saying, oh, well, now we have this fee, you have this fee. We started calling them, we started calling um, the health department, and within 24 hours they rescinded the letter and apologized to the tenants for trying to put the fee on them and refunded five different tenants that they'd already charged the fee to. Would they be able to add that maybe to a rent increase and, like, hide it under that? No. Um, health department's really looking at it. Officially... No, that'll also be considered retaliation. And mm -hmm. we've got more fighting to do, right? Yeah. Like that one ordinance is not going to is not going to protect tenants from every instance of a landlord offloading a cost in this way or that way or taking other retaliatory behavior or, or actions, right? One thing that I thought was notable about that win that we had just a couple weeks ago uh, was that none of the residents that we organized from those properties wanted to be identified by their name in the news. All of them only spoke on the condition of anonymity because they fear retaliation from their landlord that much. And that, I think, speaks to the power dynamics that are inherent in this issue where, like, the landlord has total power, suffocating power, over where the tenant gets to rest their head at the end of the night. That's pretty intense, right? Yeah. 
It's currently I'm I'm being displaced from my home in retaliation because I called codes on my landlord. He decided I have a month-to-month -month lease, and he decided to give me a notice to quit the lease. In Kansas City, the law is the landlord doesn't have to give you a reason for it. So even though it's in retaliation, he handed it to me with my counterclaim because he tried evicting me before, and I won because of no heat. So I'm still having to move anyway, and it's all because I called the city on him. And it's supposed to be built into the laws that we're allowed to do that without retaliation, but there's nobody there's nobody actually watching any of it. Right. Retaliation is really hard to fight in court, mm -hmm. um, but Brandy's story is a story that also helps us understand like why we need something in our platform, uh, like a tenant bill of rights. Like it should be a right of a tenant to a just cause eviction. Like you should get to be told what the cause is that you're being evicted, and if the cause is not just, you're not evicted, right? Mm -hmm. Many other cities in the country have just cause eviction laws on the books, and Kansas City should join them. That would be like a direct material change in Brandy's life that could keep her in her home that she now has to leave in a matter of weeks. And I, and I live the Northeast. You know, my sister has lived in the house across the street for 20 years, and she's one of my biggest supports. I'm I'm bipolar, and having that support is a huge deal when you have mental health issues and to have to move and try to figure this all out again. And then my son, you know, he goes to uh, Niles Home, which is a therapeutic school. And so I have to still stay in KCMO and make sure he can go to the school because it's that important. But having to move in the middle of the school year is not good on any kid. It's, it's rampant in the KCMO school district of people getting displaced and these kids having to move. And it's actually considered, a, it, it can cause post-traumatic stress disorder in children to have to move like this. So let's look at exactly what the affordable housing problem looks like in Kansas City. I read, I think this is the People's Housing Platform. It says, in Kansas City, a worker earning minimum wage would have to work over 92 hours a week or 2.3 full-time jobs in order to afford a two-bedroom. So I kind of want to paint a picture for our listeners of what exactly the problem looks like in Kansas City. Can you give some insight into how many renters there are, what affordable really means, and what that looks like in Kansas City? I think it's actually helpful to start with the national picture. Mm -hmm. um, across the country, there is not a county in the United States where a minimum wage worker can afford a two-bedroom apartment. Not a single county. So this problem has expanded beyond urban core areas into the suburbs, into rural America. And affordability of housing is one of the number one both causes and conditions of poverty in 2019. And with that being said, in Kansas City, the picture, you know, is similar to the rest of the country as we've established. Almost half the city rents. I think it's about 48% of the city. And of those renters, I would guess that the vast majority are facing the same kind of rental cost burden as many other renters across the country. And increasingly, this is not a poor people's issue anymore. This is a working class issue. This is a middle class issue. People like me, of relative privilege, I'm paying more than I want to in rent or more than I can afford and like live comfortably, right? And it's just getting worse. And that's the important and kind of ominous dark cloud over all of our heads is like there's no sign that this is slowing down anytime soon, especially not when we have out-of-state investors acting as leeches and like parasites on cities like Kansas City and our rental market. An investor from New York and California has no idea what fair market rent in the Northeast has typically been. So they move in, gobble up a bunch of properties that are investments. They're not meant to be a place that's like nice for a person to live. And then they're unaccountable to their tenant. They're bad neighbors to the neighborhood. 
and they're unaccountable to the city. And what they do in the rental market is they price gouge. Like they charge rents that are higher than everyone else, which then just raises the rents that everyone else around them has to pay. I used to live in Blue Hills and the house I was living in got sold to a landlord in California and rent went from 675 to 850. And in that area, which has an extremely high crime rate, there's a lot of deaths, shooting deaths over there. You can't rent a house for less than 900. And most of these landlords want you to make three times the rent. And if you're working, you know, McDonald's, and you, and you could be a manager at McDonald's even. Here they pay like $10 an hour for a manager. You still should be able to afford a place to live if you're working. I mean, I, I'm a security guard and I make $13 an hour, and it's still I still have to have a roommate to be able to afford to rent a place. What does the average rent look like in Kansas City right now? Around 900 900 So what are some of the common problems? I'm sure there's a slew of problems, honestly, um, that your people in KC tenants or the people that come to you to join yeah. the organization, what are some of those problems that you're seeing? Yeah, it's a whole range. Like, it's folks who are dealing with affordability issues, like they've fallen behind on the rent, mm -hmm. and they'll be evicted on the basis of that. There are other folks like Brandy and many others who have dealt with really abusive situations with their landlords and um, like abusive power and neglect of the property, unsafe conditions. There's a lot of folks dealing with like black and green mold all over the city and their families are literally getting sick and dying as a product of it. Like kids get asthma, the parents get headaches, they can't breathe or cough properly. There's a whole range of things. And then there's also people too in our base who aren't necessarily imminently facing any of that, but are being priced out, actively priced out of their neighborhood, right? And we um, had a tenant that her rent went up 80%. Overnight, right. And was priced out of the zip code she's lived in for 26 years of her life. There's another young person in our base who is legally blind and soon won't be able to drive a car, so really wants and needs to live along public transit lines and close to downtown, and is continuously being priced further and further away from that. So soon she won't be able to work anymore. She's perfectly able to work, but she's legally blind and she won't be able to drive, and because she can't drive and there's no transit and she can't afford housing near transit, she won't work. She's like 28. So what are some of the steps or the practical things that you guys do as an organization to make these changes? Well, part of it's getting politicians that are actually going to have an affordable housing platform. Mm -hmm. um, before we came out, you know, the politicians were really talking about the affordability issue and the, the actual housing crisis we have in Kansas City. And we've really brought that to the forefront. We also do a lot of work during the week and in between all the, the political work, like calling Landmark and, and getting them in trouble we have plans to hold other landlords accountable because it's not happening right now. If you don't stay on the city, they're not going. They're just going to keep the way they're they're doing now, and it's, nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. So our strategy right now is kind of twofold, and Brandy said this really well. Like one component of our strategy, given just the timing in Kansas City, mm -hmm. has been to electoralize the issue of housing and tenants' issues in the mayoral and council races that are going on right now. I think we have done a pretty significant job of moving the issue, moving the candidates who maybe were paying lip service to housing, but didn't really have platforms and hadn't really made hard and fast commitments on specific issues within housing. 
we've really brought that to the forefront. And I think also in doing that, we've humanized the people that the issue impacts, right? It's not just me running around with my data anymore. It's like 150 tenants on the steps of City Hall on March 4th saying, this is the platform that reflects what we need in this city. And there's real power in that. The second component of our strategy is base building. And that's not base building for base building's sake. It's building a base of directly impacted people so that we can leverage their collective power to hold landlords accountable, to hold the city accountable, to fight for and win the systemic changes that we need that would materially change the lives of the people in our base. And part of that, too, is like standing in solidarity with one another when our folks are going through the crises that they're going through. We're not in the business of providing direct service and... Our folks are sometimes showing up in the middle of the lowest moment of their life and they need help moving or they need a connection to a lawyer or they need to find a shelter for a couple nights. And we're really committed to taking those acts of solidarity on at the same time as we continue to build power and run our campaigns externally. And it seems like the the more verbal we get, the more people we have coming out of the woodwork telling us their stories, you know, even going to vote. I had three people stop me and be like, hey, what's Casey Tennant's about? This is what's going on with my landlord. You know, I, I have a, a water heater that's leaking rust into into the building, and the landlord won't do anything about it. I haven't been able to get the property management company to call me back in two weeks. Um, just all these different stories that randomly, you know, just wearing our yellow shirts, people come up to you and are like, hey, this is the issue I'm having. And we've been getting them to come to the meetings and stand with us. Do you guys usually advocate for individual issues, or is it just like a collective whole? Well, our platform is pretty broad strokes, like it's not one issue or the other. I think also because so many of our folks, like Brandy, have faced all of, like, so many of these issues on top of each other, like it'd be hard to pick one fight at this point. I don't think that'll be the case forever. Like, the school of organizing that I'm from says that, like, at a certain point, you cut the issue, right? You've got this big problem, and you cut it down into an issue, and you run a campaign on that issue to win something. So I think we'll do that sooner rather than later. But for the purpose of, like, moving housing to the center of the municipal elections and just, like, ratcheting up people's interest and awareness of the folks impacted by the issue, I think we had to kind of paint with a broad stroke for now. But the platform was created by the tenants. It wasn't just that Tara came to town and (laughs) had set up the platform. We actually all got together and said, these are the problems we're seeing, these are the solutions we're looking for, and we kind of condensed that down into the main issues. Yeah, I actually have that in front of me, and I really want to talk about this. So this is the Casey Tenants Housing, I'm sorry, Casey Tenants People's Housing Platform, um, which lists out the problems, solutions, tenant protection. So tell us a little bit about this and kind of that process of how you came to create this. Well, it was um, at one of our first tenant meetings. We kind of held a roundtable with a, a big group of tenants and literally listed out the different problems that we all faced and the different solutions we wanted to see to that. And then we all sat together and condensed it down into the actual platform that these were very typical on each each person's list and these were the solutions that each person was wanting to see it took about three tenant meetings we did like deep workshops with folks the first one that very first meeting you were there right Brandy? the very first meeting we did kind of a bigger picture exercise that was like the world as it is versus the world as it should be. If we could wave a magic wand, like what would happen in that world? Mm -hmm. And the world as it is part, we asked like really specific questions like, how are decisions made now? Are we involved or aren't we involved? Who is involved if it's not us? 
And it's from some of that early work that we got things like our structural reform component in our platform that's mm -hmm. about limiting the influence of developer, landlord, and real estate money in local elections. It's one of the key things that came out when we did that exercise is like decisions are made about our lives, about housing behind closed doors and influenced by moneyed interests. Like, our people aren't dumb. Brandy and everyone else in the room knows how this stuff works in this town and mm -hmm. across the country, right? So we named stuff like that, like the world as it is, imagine the world as it could be or should be. The next time around, we did a worksheet of, like, listing the problems and listing the solutions. Then we put together a draft of the platform, and then the third workshop, folks went through line by line and gave really specific feedback, all of which was implemented, basically. People were like, there's not enough about homelessness here. So then there was an addition of a whole component on homelessness. And I think one just final thing that I would say is, like, this is not a document that is going to sit on a shelf and collect dust, right? We know that this document doesn't touch on everything. It doesn't touch on transportation. It doesn't have a robust enough component on people who are reentering after they've faced convictions or jail times or anything. So there's a lot we want to add to it, and there's a lot that probably needs to be, like, tweaked and changed and amended at a certain point. But I'm excited about it. I think it's a pretty radical process that we went through. And it's funny, the, the more we put our platform out, the more we had landlords pushing back. Because mm -hmm. um, part of the platform is a eviction forgiveness program. Mm -hmm. Landlords are like, okay, well, if you're not paying rent, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to rent another house, and I should be able to look at you and not do that. Mm -hmm. But part of our idea with that is to actually have a class to help the person get through whatever the eviction was from. And so then you don't have a scarlet letter sitting on you and you can't rent from anybody for 10 years. Because a lot of the landlords, they'll put, um, if you if you just do like even a quick Facebook search or, you know, go through any of the, the housing searches, you'll see landlords, you know, say no evictions in the last five years, no evictions in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Where are people supposed to live during that time? Yeah. You know, you have something that happens in your life. You're able to fix it. You're able to get through it. But then you have no place to live. And, and that's, that's a big crisis here. No, absolutely. I mean, that's every place I try. I mean, I rent, too, in the mm. Northeast. And that's the first question that I get asked. So let's talk a little bit about these four bullet points here. Tenant protections, which is under the tab of solutions. Um, tenant bill of rights, emergency relief, eviction, remediation, and ban the box. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, ban the box is basically banning landlords from asking people if they have a felony. Because you, you have somebody who's gone through jail and done their time, and then they can't rent a house. And that's that's not right. I mean, they, they've already done their time. You know, they've been reformed. They should be able to rent a property. I mean, housing is a basic right. And the thing is, in Kansas City, we actually have a ban-the-box ordinance for employment. And it includes housing, but the, there's no enforcement on the housing side. So still, if you go on Craigslist or something to look for housing, you find, like, tons and tons of ads that say no felons can apply. And then on the other hand, you can type in like rental housing, uh, criminal record or something and find some landlords who will let you apply. But those will be like the most exploitative landlords in the market, right? Who are renting to people who they know are desperate because no one else will rent to them. So that's banned the box. And then the others like uh, tenant bill of rights, we talked about a little bit, which is uh, we need like a broad slate of rights that tenants can be guaranteed in the city. We don't have that, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to go fight for that and win it. And it has to come with real enforcement, like real teeth, real money behind it, um, real sort of recourse for tenants who have their rights violated all the freaking time, right? Mm -hmm. And then the eviction remediation and emergency relief components are about 
battling some of the stuff that Brandy's talked about, like the, the scarlet letter of an eviction, needs to be done away with, right? So many of our leaders have one eviction on their record or even a couple, but they're all for reasons that like any of us might encounter in our life, right? We have a leader, Tiana, who was re-diagnosed with ovarian cancer last spring and fell behind on her rent because she had to make her medical payments. And Tiana is organizing with us because she is so angry that in the richest country in the history of the world, someone has to choose between their health and keeping a roof of their head, right? Yeah, yeah I got an eviction because I couldn't get access to my medication. Um, being bipolar medication is a super important thing. And I lost insurance, and I had a five-month wait list to even get a prescription. And through that, depression happens, and then you're unable to work when you're that depressed and ended up getting evicted for it. And, I mean, now I'm doing great. I'm able to get, get my medication. But there's still times that it's the copay for the medication or it's the electric bill or it's the copay for the medication or it's putting food on my table. And to have to make that kind of decision when you know it's your health and you're able to function every day, that's, that's just not right. It's yeah. not right. That's not right. And the thing I that makes me so mad is this thing that, like, this is the richest country ever, mm-hmm. ever. And there's so much so much money in a city like this. Um, the question is, like, whose lives are prioritized, right? Big developers downtown get $25 million tax abatements, but Brandy has to make that decision about putting food on her table or paying the rent. It's crazy. I have a couple questions here. So you have these rents and you have minimum wage that requires people to work multiple minimum wage jobs to be able to afford this. Can you see some kind of connection or tie between those two? For sure. I think it's such an important tie, but to just fight for, first of all, this is not the official position of Casey Tenants, but I think I can safely say that everyone in Casey Tenants is totally pro raising the minimum wage Mm -hmm. to a living wage. And that by itself won't solve the housing crisis, right? right? right, right. Rents will continue to increase until we stop it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are ways of stopping it, right? Like rent control is such a stigmatized word across this country, but it's because the dominant narrative is all about housing as a commodity and making money off of housing, as opposed to housing as a right and the fact that housing should be safe, decent, affordable housing should be a guarantee of for anyone living in this country, right? So rent control is currently outlawed in the state of Missouri, as it is in many states across the country. That was a big movement that happened in the 90s to outlaw rent regulations. But many other states across the country are now fighting battles and winning them Mm -hmm. to lift the ban on rent control. Oregon just passed the first statewide rent control law uh, in the country's history. In Illinois, I have comrades that are fighting to lift the ban on rent control, and they're likely to win in the next couple of years. There was just a ballot measure in California. And then in places like New York, where they have rent control, um, and it's legal in the state, there are places like Ossany, New York, like north of New York City, a pretty working-class town that just won the largest rent stabilization in 20 years. And that's all possible. Like, if we build enough power, we can go do that seems impossible and crazy right now, considering the way uh, Jeff City looks, but nothing's out of question. I think it, it just depends on how much power we can build. We have all these people at the top who, you know, make a million dollars a month who are having us at the bottom fighting over crumbs, thinking that that's all it is. It's not a pie. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that it's possible to do all these things. It's, you know, it's possible to put on the, the investors that are building the garages downtown and things like that and saying, okay, well, if you're building this, then you can put a little bit of money into the housing trust fund. Or you have to have so many affordable units, and you get this huge tax abatement to be able to do that. 
but you still have to invest in our city. And it's not like that far-fetched of an idea. It's not radical at all, right? It's like, it's very basically the stuff that we should be doing to protect our city and protect the interests of the people who live here. It seems radical in a context in which the city is kind of addicted to growth for growth's sake, right? Certain leaders of this city talk about how we're on a roll, right? Kansas City is having a renaissance. We're on a roll in which direction? And for whom is this renaissance, right? Like, there's not really a movement that's fighting for the people who are here and for their future in this city, right? In five, ten years, I think part of the urgency that's bringing people into our room is that Brandy's super clear, I don't want to speak for you, but like Brandy and the other leaders in our base are super clear that in five, ten years, they won't be able to afford to live here, period. I don't know if I'll be able to afford to live here. Yeah, yeah. And you have these people who have grown up in Kansas City their whole lives, who just love Kansas City, you know, who are the good neighbors, who are the good tenants, who are just going to have to move because we're getting priced out of our areas. Living in in the Likens neighborhood where where I'm at, you know, my sisters lived there for 20 years, and it would be great to still be able to afford to live in that neighborhood. But even now, looking at houses in Lincoln's, you know, you're talking $800, $900, $1,000 for a three-bedroom house. And that's just, that's not affordable. That's not, I mean, even with, with what I'm making right now, I would still have to have two roommates to be able to afford it or work three jobs and not be able to ever see my kids. Or and you should time. see this house. It's not nice. Brandy loves it, and it's close to her sister, and it's I wish got, that she could stay there, but, like... It's got really awesome bones, if it was ever taken care of, like... Right. Um, when I moved in, the landlord didn't clean it. I had to clean it up myself. Um, I spent two weeks uh, getting the smell of the house. The last tenant had just let it trash, and he just went from one tenant to the next. You shampooed the carpet for weeks? Yeah, I, I spent I spent ten hours one day trying to shampoo the carpet just to... And I got maybe three square feet done in ten hours because the garbage is just that gross. We have a door upstairs that has fallen off the hinges because the wood's rotten underneath it. There's no electricity in the living room. Um, the water heater has been unsealed. It's supposed to have a, a glass shield over it. It's been, been unsealed and it's been rigged with a different type of ignition system that it's supposed to have. So whenever the gas company comes to try to turn on the gas because the landlord supposedly fixed the heater that time, they turn off the gas to the water heater because it's unsafe. And then you called codes. Yeah, I called codes. Codes didn't do anything. Um, and now Brandy's being evicted. Yeah, um, I called codes, and he came by one time. I sent this guy eight emails and eight different phone calls within a six-week period. Never got a single call back. I ended up having to call one of the council members, call him out publicly, and finally they called a supervisor at codes. The guy came back, made the landlord come too, because he still didn't believe me that the heat didn't work, even though I have space heaters everywhere and there's no heat in the house. And... This, this codes guy kept telling me, oh, well, you need to pay your rent. My rent was paid. Matter of fact, at that point, the landlord owed me money because uh, the I did a counterclaim when he tried to evict me the first time, basically stating that the landlord wasn't following the implied warranty of habitability, which when you sign a lease in, in KCMO, there's a guarantee that you're going to have heat, safe water, and um, safe electricity. That, that's guaranteed when you sign your lease, or at least it's supposed to be, and it's not being kept up here at all. My favorite thing about Brandy is that, as you can tell, she is an expert on these issues, right? The first time I met her, she had a packet of all of her documentation of the stuff that has gone wrong in her current place, and she was taking me through all of her like analysis about codes, how the codes department has failed her, how all of the codes were violated in the place that she's living now. She knows this issue backwards and forwards, and Brandy's the person who could point 
who could tell you her story and then point to every piece of it and tell you how public policy has failed her as a person, as a working class person in this country. Well, we can have all the laws in the world, but if there's nobody backing them, there, there's no point. Mm-hmm. I mean, like this codes inspector, I can guarantee you didn't get in trouble. And yet, there's still an open case on my house. The landlord, had, the, the house isn't even registered under my landlord's name. It's under his son as an owner lived in house, which is which was illegal before the Healthy Homes, which is even more illegal now. But I can guarantee you, you know, until until something is done, he's not going to get in trouble for it at all. I mean, he owns 150 properties here in the Northeast, and I, I can promise you that none of them are up to code because he just doesn't care. He he wants to. He and I have him on camera over and over again saying, "I just want money. I just want money." And it's like, no, you you you're. I'm paying for a service. You're not providing the service. This this is not okay. And I mean, even before my heater exploded, I found out that the exhaust system wasn't hooked up to it. And it was leaking CO2 in the house. I mean, I could have literally died in this house more than once. And what did he tell you? Oh, yeah, I was like, hey, if he, when he was trying to fix the heater, I was like, if this doesn't fix it and something happens and I die, he goes, oh, well, you can sue the city. I said, well, if I'm dead, I can't sue the city. He goes, oh, well, your family can sue the city. Because he seriously believes the lines inside the house are the city responsibility. Because he's never been opposed. He's never had somebody say, hey, what you're doing is illegal. And this is just one of hundreds of landlords like this. But I will say, not for long. Once Brandy's safely out of that place, we will definitely be staging some sort of accountability action against this particular landlord. And those types of actions are really important, right? Mm -hmm. Like the action that we took against Landmark Realty a couple weeks ago when they tried to pass on the healthy homes fee to their tenants is important not just because we saved low-income tenants like $40,000 in April's rent in Kansas City, but also because that's a signal to other landlords that they're not going to get away with stuff like that. And they're not on our watch. And if we can, if KC tenants can provide the protection and facilitate the anonymity that's needed by people who fear retaliation from their landlord, that's what we're here for. Like we're here to both do, be the accountability and be the like voices and people in the streets, like making sure that these landlords are accountable to their tenants, and then also provide a space where tenants who can't step into their power yet because they fear retaliation to come to a place that will like take their story and do something with it. Because nobody should ever have to go through this. Nobody should have their landlord call them dumb female or not care if they die in their house. Um, you guys put together your very comprehensive voter guide. <clears throat> that was the Casey Tennis in Action. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay, Casey Tennis in Action. Um, put that together. I want to talk a little bit about, I don't know if you can speak on behalf of the organization as a whole, but what are some thoughts that you have on the two candidates that advance to the general election in regards to affordable housing? So I definitely can't speak on behalf of the whole organization. We're actually having a really exciting tenant meeting tomorrow Mm -hmm. to determine what our strategy is moving forward. And I think there we will do a much deeper dive to understand how our base is feeling about both candidates, about the candidates who made it out of the council races, also really important. And we'll be deciding whether and how we want to throw down around the general election. Um, I don't want to take for granted that our base, like, wants to continue doing this type of, like, the campaign work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, like, my opinion is that it's important for us to continue doing both, the base building, the direct action against landlords, and uh, we have real political muscle already, right? And we should be using that to push the candidates to be as pro-tenant as we can get them to be, to get them to commit to our agenda, to get them to uh, raise up the stories of our people and make sure that they're recognized as people of Kansas City, right? And I think there's a number of different ways we can do that. 
but one thing I just want to celebrate quickly is like that voter guide, like 1,800 people opened it in the one week that it was out and 800 of those people opened it on election day. And obviously there's no way of knowing if people took the voter guide, read it, and then like voted exactly according to how we ranked people. But I do think that kind of tool is like water in a desert for elections like this in places like Kansas City. And I think we we had a non-negligible impact on the outcome of this election. Um, we've talked to 12,000 renters in Kansas City in seven weeks. In the last week before the election, we talked to 3,000 voters, registered voters. And then in that last week, we had 1,800 people read our voter guide, which ranked candidates according to how they responded to our questions and also according to their past track records. So we have political muscle that I think is like not to be underestimated, considering how young we are, um, and that will only continue to grow. Well, I think it's also really important that the vast majority of the KC tenants are voters. Mm-hmm. We, we actually took a poll to see how many of us were registered voters, and almost everybody, we had maybe one, maybe two people that weren't completely registered at the time, but I can guarantee you we'll be registered by the next the next vote. That's right. That's right. And we did a second poll that was like, and which candidate has talked to you, has like knocked on your door, has sent you any mail, and almost no one. Poor folks are assumed, poor and working class people are assumed to not be voters. Um, and oftentimes that assumption is not wrong, right? Like poor and working class people are working three jobs, and they often don't have time to go vote on election day, which is crazy. And they're often not motivated to vote because the candidates aren't talking about issues that have anything to do with their lives. But what we saw on election day is ten of voters turning out, identifying to us that they had read our voter guide, telling us why they were voting as a tenant according to our guide. And that's really powerful. And that was Tara Rockavere and Brady Granados with KC Tenants. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Northeast Newscast. I'm Elizabeth Orozco.